Thank you for joining us for the 2022 NACDD President's Challenge podcast series. I'm your host, Christy Peer, NACDD Board President from the Maryland Department of Health. In this series, we are talking with leaders around the country about resilience and well-being in our communities, our teams at work, and ourselves to identify ways to apply lessons learned in public health. We are framing the conversations in four categories or buckets based on the socio-ecological model, societal, community, interpersonal, and individual. Resilience is defined broadly, typically dependent on the context. Anne Maston's definition of resilience frames the goals, the capacity of a system to adapt successfully to disturbances that threaten the viability, function, or development of the system. So let's get started. In this episode, we will be continuing our conversation with Dan Foy from Gallup, looking at steps we can take to build resilience in our teams. Welcome back, Dan. In our last episode, we discussed a framework for leaders and organizations to promote employee well-being and improve retention. What I'm hearing from you is really a wonderful roadmap which also includes modeling work-life balance, well-being, flexibility, and adaptability. The concept of a total rewards policy is also very interesting. Social determinants of retention seem to play a role in those factors. Is that correct? Including the recognition of leaders to be flexible and adaptable? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I love it. You're, you're filling in some of the huge steps in a roadmap like that. I think we've talked about the conceptual pieces, right? So flexibility, adaptability, those are really mindsets or, or, or principles that organizations need to hold on to. I, I also talked about getting senior leaders on board and activating managers and, and figuring out what that looks like. Again, those are aspirational steps, but a lot of times you know, when you're inside of an organization, you can have great aspirations, but it, at some point it comes down to, okay, how do we get from point A to point B? What are the practical steps that we need to implement? And I, I think that's the area we, we haven't talked about much yet. When we look at, at the organizational level, it's almost the, you know, people don't love this word, but audit. What's a well-being audit look like for your organization? Doing that sort of initial baseline, getting together a, a team that's going to really look across your policies and your offerings and, and figure out if you're covering the space that you need to cover. Gallup, you know, I, I mentioned our, our thriving metric earlier. One of the other ways that we, we look at well-being, sort of the layer beyond that overall outcome of thriving, is we have a, a holistic model of well-being that, that covers five factors of uh, a physical, social, career, or purpose, and community, as well as financial. And you know, our model is, is well-validated, and we're big fans of it. I, I think the important thing is that you've got a holistic model, that you recognize that you've got to be covering more than just physical well-being, which is where I think the legacy, maybe well-being generation one, was all about physical, and now we're recognizing that there's more to it. Other organizations we've seen will will put mental health in a separate space in that model or emotional health. I, I mentioned I work in healthcare. There's a lot of really strong healthcare organizations that are faith based, and they they want to talk about spiritual well being. I think that's an area that can be really interesting if that aligns with your organizational mission as well. But whatever your framework that you're using, sitting down and saying, okay, here's our framework. We've got these these five different domains that we really care about that we believe in are important for that individual's well being. What are we doing across our policies, 
to support this? What are we doing with communication? What are we doing with incentives? What are we doing with events? Do we have the right facilities in place? And really looking across these different aspects and almost you can imagine putting together a grid and saying, okay, if we look at physical well-being, we've got a, we've got a great fitness center. We've got healthy options in the cafeteria. We've got uh, exercise reimbursement program. We're, we're doing pretty good. We're covering some of our bases. What are we doing on community well-being? Do we, have, do we have resources dedicated to that? What are we doing to incentivize people to get involved in their community or build connections with their community? And, and maybe that's an area of opportunity. And, and so I think that first step of just trying to get everything out on the table is really important. A lot of times organizations don't even realize what they're doing that may be helpful to well-being. And so financial well-being is a good example of this where organizations are maybe, you know, maybe you're doing automatic opt-in into the 401k. That, that was something that, that became popular with behavioral economics a few years ago. And a lot of times people don't realize that, that that's a well-being contributor and, and recognizing that these things are out there and, and that they're, they're being done is an important first step. Once you move through the audit stage, though, and you sort of know what are the resources we have available, I, I really love the, the adage, uh, you can't move what you don't measure. And, and it is so true in the case of well-being. You have to have a baseline. You have to know where your employees stand on well-being, both overall and within those domains. And what we find is when we go into organizations, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach for every single team out there. An organization may have strong well-being overall, but maybe people in one role or one department are, are struggling. Different teams are going to be struggling in different areas. Some teams are going to be really strong in their physical well-being, their financial well-being. Maybe their social well-being is suffering. A different team is going to be the exact opposite. And so really getting that nuanced view of what's going on within the organization so that you can then take the information and the resources that you uncovered in your initial audit and start targeting those to the areas that they need to go. It also is then very helpful for prioritizing new initiatives. And I, I think a lot of times one of the things we see is that organizations are spending a lot of time and effort and resources on programs that just don't work. And you may think you're, you're really well invested in a social well-being program for your employees, but if people aren't utilizing the program and if their social well-being is struggling, what are you spending your money on? Turn around and, and find a different way to approach this and be creative. And so I think that establishing that baseline, knowing what you're doing now and, and using that as a roadmap, more of a tactical roadmap for how do you get to the state that you want to be is, is a really important part of the process. The other thing, you know, and I kind of this kind of goes into the, the roadmap piece and when we think about those programs is I think especially with NACDD and the audience of public health professionals, this probably resonates, but applying behavior change theory, and you look at like the integrated health behavior model or some of these approaches that are really well validated for how do we drive behavior change at an individual level or a population level, we need to turn that science on ourselves and our organizations when we think about well-being. And so it's some of the same sort of things. What are the norms? What are the habits? What are the expectations around different kinds of behaviors? What are the sort of signals and defaults that you have in place? And, and how do you get people the resources they need, the education they need, the capability, the self-efficacy that they need in order to achieve their own well-being? And I think organizations can, can do a lot more than they are now and probably a lot more than they realize they can if they take this kind of a mindset. The other thing I want to call out, though, and this gets to one of your earlier questions as well, we also know from health behavior change and public health that top-down interventions can only go so far. And at the end of the day, well-being is an individual phenomenon. And so a big piece of what organizations need to be supporting is helping the individual employees on their teams own their own well-being. And a lot of that comes down to 
education and resources, but I would also just encourage individuals out there who may be listening and maybe your manager isn't having these kinds of well-being conversations. That doesn't mean that you can't own your own well-being. That doesn't mean that you can't take steps to to achieve these kinds of things for yourself. And and by the way, you're you'll be happy if you do. So that's that's the upside here. But you know, again, there's really some steps and some principles you can think about in this regard if you're trying to own your own well-being and you want to get started on this. The first is, you know, sort of a microcosm of what we talked about at the organizational level, doing a almost an audit on yourself. Where do you stand on these five domains when you think about when you think about your physical well-being, when you think about your financial well-being, your community well-being, your career well-being or your social well-being how do you evaluate yourself where where are the areas where you feel like you you maybe could have room for improvement and i think you can always learn more information about each of these details but even just the categories right it's, pr- it's pretty easy you, you probably if you're listening are are already able to say which one of those areas you would most like to focus on pick an area and then start thinking about I would encourage people start thinking about what makes them unique. One of the other things we do at Gallup is is we do a lot of work on sort of individual psychology, individual talents or Clifton strengths people may have heard of as one of our products in this area. But the basic insight is that different individuals have different ways of motivating themselves, different ways of processing information, different ways of achieving outcomes. And every individual is going to have a, a unique solution to the challenges they're trying to overcome. So pick your area of well-being that you want to focus on, set a well-being goal, and then really think about what are the things that you as an individual can do that are going to be the most effective here for you to achieve that. The example I love to give here, drawing from physical well-being. So my my partner is a social butterfly and an achiever, and she loves to get up early and go to a group exercise class. And she's with other people. She's getting her social time, or, or she'll go for a run with her group of friends. And, and it's, it's, a, it's important for her, not just from a physical well-being standpoint, but she's also helping her social well-being, and, and it's very motivating for her. For me personally... I can't think of anything worse than getting up at 5 a.m. and going to a group exercise class. It sounds like punishment to me. I have different ways that I want to go about doing that. I like to go for a long bike ride by myself in the afternoon and get time to think and unwind and process. You're going to be, you're going to be different than that. Everybody's going to have their own approaches. And so it's really about figuring out what works for you, what's going to motivate you. And then, like I was saying before with behavioral theory change, you know, looking at habits, there's some really great resources out there around habit formation and, and really driving your own habits and, and starting small. And, and there's lo- lots of great advice about how do you prime a habit? How do you start establishing an achievable habit? I think that's really the secret is putting together a roadmap for yourself and then figuring out how do you make small changes to get small wins and accumulate those over time. And what you'll see is that momentum starts to build and you're able to achieve some of these goals and then move on and focus on other areas in your life. And it it can be really effective and transformational if you take that initiative. That's great. There is so much to follow up on. The overarching comment I had is for most of the folks listening, they are public health professionals. And we just love to do assessments. We love to get the baseline data and also plan for outcomes. And this is really interesting in the sense that I'm not sure we step back and use our public health principles to also be able to really look at how we can work with our employees and help them build resilience. And also, how do we build that workforce environment? I really love bringing that home, Dan. I just really appreciate you really pulling out all of those things that were doing already, and why aren't we also doing them in our workplace? And I think that 
this will also give us some exercise of power. It goes back to some of what I was asking before about where is our sphere of influence and is this someplace where we could actually really utilize those tools and skills that we do already have. And then of course, I think behavior change theory works very well for so many different things. Was there anything else that you thought about that you wanted to share? This has been such a wonderful conversation. I think a fully packed conversation. Are there any last thoughts you had? Yeah. And I, I, I love your observation about empowering ourselves within, within the profession. And think of the old cliches, a doctor heal thyself or the cobbler's children have no shoes sort of scenarios. And I think it, it goes for so many things. A lot of times we're, we're, we're not eating our own cooking and we need to recognize that we've got, we've got these resources and, and really we, we have the ability to do it. And I think that's such, such an important thing to recognize when you're trying to tackle well-being or, or any challenge, frankly, within the organization. You know, if I could maybe share a couple other thoughts looking more towards the future here. And I, we've, we've been talking a lot about the pandemic and what we've been through. And I shared some of the historical trends prior to the pandemic. But if we look at where are things going from here from a bigger picture standpoint, I think one of the things that we've seen, and again, in the data that we've been tracking over time is I think about it like COVID has taken a lot of issues that were simmering and brought them to a boil. And so to take a couple of examples there, one of them related to well-being that we've been talking about is just burnout is, is such a mainstream topic now. And it, it really was more of a, a niche conversation before COVID. Uh, we were definitely seeing growth in, in dialogues around burnout and more industries recognizing that you know, people, that teachers can be burned out, that professionals can be burned out, people in different roles. I, I think initially it was really started within the healthcare space was kind of the area that we saw a lot of focus or in, you know, I think also the military with PTSD is another example where it, these conversations were happening early on, but moving beyond physician burnout or nurse burnout and recognizing that it can happen in all, all these areas. I think there's other issues like that that are really starting to come to the surface where there were talk about changes in the economy and the way that people work before the pandemic. And that now they're just a reality. And so one of the big ones I look at is if you look at and think back to all of the conversations around AI and automation and the gig economy and, and the changes that people saw that were coming, and all of a sudden in COVID, we're all, we're all working remotely. We're all on video all the time. We see that these sort of behavioral changes in the way that we do our work have opened up a lot of, I would say, new new challenges or new opportunities. And so um, you look at things like turnover and retention, and it's been called the, the great resignation. Gallup's done a lot of research on this topic for, for a number of years. And you know, historically, we, we had this stat that we discovered that if you asked employees who were fully engaged, what it would take for them to, to it doesn't have to be the way it was. And we've seen that, we've lived that over the last few years and recognizing that they can have different expectations of their employer that they should expect their employer to care about their well-being. And we, there's another area we saw really interesting data throughout the pandemic where early in the pandemic, people actually thought their employers were caring about their well-being in a way they never had before. We saw it with the 
while well-being as an outcome was starting to drop, employers were really leaning in and and really taking, uh, you know, almost taking advantage of the pandemic to start different kinds of conversations with their employees and and care about their well-being, care about their health, care about their safety. And unfortunately, we've seen that that was transitory, and that's actually eroded now to where we had almost 50% of employees during the heights of the pandemic strongly agreed that their employer cared about their well-being, and it's it's back down to the historical levels of around 25%. And the issue there is not just that we've reverted to the historical levels, but that that's if you look at it from the perspective of something like prospect theory, the pain of a loss is is greater than the benefit that we feel from a gain. And so all of a sudden, people thought their employers cared, and then the rug was pulled out from under them. And so they're not back at baseline. They're actually worse off than they were before when you look at something like that. I think you look at those sorts of issues related to people leaving their roles and, and just some of the challenges we see around around talent, around aggressive recruiting of, of employees that are out there. There's a lot of these challenges that are front and center for organizations and are going to be persistent after the pandemic. The, the way that technology has broken geography, you and I are having this conversation in different time zones today, and it feels just like you're sitting across the room from me. It's, it's something that feels natural now. Three years ago, that was would not have been the case. We'd have been we'd have been holding a phone receiver to our ears, and and it would have felt a lot a lot less human. And I think that a lot of that has changed, and that these technology, the changing expectations of the workplace, have opened up new opportunities for people in the economy, new ways of working, and that those futures of work are here. We've seen a generational shift in a matter of a couple of years. Maybe my parting thought is, organizations really need to acknowledge this and recognize that. This is both a moment of tremendous risk and huge opportunity. And organizations that are able to recognize what employees need, that are able to activate well-being, that are able to make things like this a priority, are going to have an advantage and a head start on those organizations that take longer to realize that. And so I, I hope that, that if there's one takeaway message from today, it's that these issues are real. These issues are present and they are urgent and there are things you can do to address them and and you should get started right now if you haven't already. Oh, thank you. I think this concept of taking advantage of the opportunity is critical as really we all actually need to take all of this to heart because we've really seen as you're calling the great resignation is that we may not be able to bring new people into our workplaces And we may not necessarily be an attractive workplace if we're not actually working to take advantage of these opportunities as they are presenting themselves. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been really wonderful to speak with you again today. I learn so much every time we talk, and I'm so grateful for you to take the time today to speak with us. It's just been a pleasure and a wonderful conversation, and I so appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much, Christy. It's just, it's an honor to be here with you. And, you know, I think that what you're doing and having these conversations and and putting this information out is, it's such a great example of the kinds of things that organizations should be doing to help their members, to help their employees uh, really start to think differently and and recognizing we're on a podcast. It's a great way to communicate with people. It's a great example of the kinds of things that organizations should be doing to innovate around how do you engage your people? How do you encourage their well-being? And and hopefully we've said something helpful today. Hopefully somebody listening will take away some ideas that they can take back to their organizations. And ultimately, I think that that's the benchmark for success for us. So thank you so much for for bringing me in here and, and giving me the chance to talk with you today. And call me anytime. Let's do it again. That is all the time we have today. 
Thanks again to Dan for joining us and sharing his insights on supporting employee resilience and well-being at the organizational level. And thank you to our listeners who took time out of your day to listen to this NACDD President's Challenge podcast. 